Chapter Three of The Trawler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Trawler by James Brendan Connolly. Chapter Three. All that night I walked the streets and roads of Cape Ann, walking where my eyes would lose no sight of that sea to which I had been born, and thinking, thinking thinking always to the surge and roar of it. And in the morning I went down to where Hugh Glynn's vessel lay in dock. And Hugh Glynn himself I found standing on the string-piece, holding by the hand and feeding candy to the little son of one of his crew, the while half a dozen men were asking him, one after the other, for what I, too, had come to ask. My turn came. "'I never met you to speak to before, Captain Glynn,' I began. "'But I was a friend of Arthur Snow's, and I was hopeful for the chance to ship with you in Arthur's place.' "'My name is Simon Kippen,' I went on, when he made no answer. "'I was in John Snow's kitchen when you came in last night.' "'I know,' he waved the hand that wasn't holding the little boy." I know, and, he almost smiled, you're not afraid to come to sea with me? Why more afraid, I said, than you to take me with you? You were a great friend of Arthur's? A friend to Arthur, and more if I could, I answered. He had a way of throwing his head back and letting his eyes look out, as from a distance, or as if he would take the measure of a man. Twas so he looked out at me now. "'He's a hard case of a man, shouldn't you say, Simon Kippen, who would play a shipmate foul?' I said nothing to that. "'And, master or hand, we're surely all shipmates,' he added to which again I said nothing. "'Will you take Saul Haverick for dory-mate?' he said again. "'I bear Saul Haverick no great love,' I said. "'But I have never heard he wasn't a good fisherman, and who should ask more than that of his mate in a dory?' He looked out at me once more from the eyes that seemed so far back in his head and from me he looked to the flag that was still to the half-mast of his vessel for the loss of Arthur Snow. "'We might ask something more in a dory-mate at times, but he is a good fisherman,' he answered at last. "'A good hand to the wheel of a vessel, too, a cool head in danger, and one of the best judges of weather ever I sailed with. "'We're putting out in the morning. You can have the chance.' As to what was in my heart when I chose to ship with Hugh Glynn, I cannot say. There are those who tell us how they can explain every heartbeat, quick or slow, when aught ails them. I never could. I only know that standing on the steps of Mary Snow's house the night before, all my thought was of Mary Snow sitting at the window and looking down the street after Hugh Glynn. And... "'God help you, Simon Kippen,' I found myself saying. "'It's not you, nor Sal Haverick, 
nor any other living man will marry Mary Snow while Hugh Glynn lives, for there is no striving against the strength of the sea, and the strength of Hugh Glynn is the strength of the sea. But of what lay beyond that in my heart I could not say. And now I was to see with Hugh Glynn, and we were not four days out of Gloucester when, as if but to show me the manner of man he was, he runs clear to the head of Placentia Bay, in Newfoundland, for a baiting on our way to the banks. And whoever knows Placentia Bay knows what that means, with the steam-cutters of the Crown patrolling, and their sleepless watches night and day aloft, to trap whoever would try to buy a baiting there against the law. No harm fell to Hugh Glynn that time. No harm ever fell to him, fishermen said. Before ever the cutters could get sight of him, he had sight of them, and his bait stowed below, safe away he came, driving wild-like past the islands of the bay, with never a side-light showing in the night, and not the first time he had done so. "'What do you say to that, Simon? Didn't we fool him good?' he asked, when once more we were on the high seas and laying a free course for the western banks. "'I'm grateful you did not ask me to go in any dory to bring the bait off,' I answered. "'Why is that, Simon?' he asked, as one who has no suspicion. "'It was against the law, Captain Glynn.' "'But a bad law, Simon?' "'Law is law,' I answered to that. He walked from the wheel, where I was, twice to break of the vessel, and back again, and said, in a voice no louder than was needful to be heard above what loose water was splashing over her quarter to my feet, "'Don't be put out with me for what I'll tell you now, Simon. You're a good lad, Simon, and come of good people, but of people that for hundreds of years have thought but one way in the great matters of life. And when men have lived with their minds set in the one way so long, Simon, it comes hard for them to understand any other way. Such unfrequent ones as differed from your people, Simon, them they cast out from among them. I know, I know, Simon, because I come from people something like to them, only I escaped before it was too late to understand that people who split tacks with you do not always do it to fetch up on a lee shore. And from those other people, no doubt, Captain Glynn, you learned it was right to break a country's laws? It wasn't breaking our country's law, Simon, nor any good man's law to get a baiting last night. There are a lot of poor fishermen, Simon, as none know better than yourself, in Placentia Bay who have bait to sell, and there is a law which says they must not. But whose law? An American law? No. God's law? No. The law of those poor people in Placentia Bay? No. Some traders who have the making of the laws? Yes. And there you have it. If the Placentia Bay fishermen aren't allowed to sell bait to me, or the like of me, they will have to sell it to the traders themselves but have to take their one dollar, where we of Gloucester would pay them five. 
and paying it would give some of them and their families a chance to live. He stood there in his rubber boots to his hips and his long great coat to his ankles. He was one who never wore oilskins aboard ship, swinging with the swing of the plunging vessel as if he was built into her, and with his head thrown back and a smile, it may be, that was not a smile at all, and kept looking at me from out of eyes that were changeable as the sea itself. "'Don't you be getting mad with me, Simon, because we don't think alike in some things. To the devil with what people think of you. I've said that often enough, Simon, but not when they're good people. If some people don't like us, Simon, there will come no nourishment to our souls.' Some day you're going to come to my way of thinking, Simon, because we two are alike underneath. Alike? I smiled to myself. Aye, alike at heart, Simon. We may look to be sailing wide apart courses now, but maybe if our papers were examined, twould be found we'd cleared for the same last port of call, Simon and no more talk of anything like that between us until the night before we were to leave the fishing grounds for home. In the afternoon we had set our trawls, and, leaving the vessel, the skipper had said, "'Our last set, boys. Let em lay to-night, and in the morning we'll haul.' And returning aboard after setting, we had our supper and were making ready, such as had no watch to stand, to turn in for a good long sleep against the labor of the morrow. It was an oily sea that evening, a black, oily smooth surface, lifting heavy and slow to a long swell. A smooth oily sea, there is never any good comes out of it, but a beautiful sea notwithstanding, with more curious patterns of shifting colors than a man could count in a year playing atop of it, the colors coming and going, and rolling, and squirming. No woman's shop ashore ever held such colors under the bright night lights as under the low sun we saw this night on the western banks. It was a most beautiful and a most wicked sea to stop and look at. And the sun went down that evening on a banking of clouds no less beautiful, a copper-red sun, and after it was gone, in lovely massy forms and splendid colors were piled the clouds in all the western quarter. Such of the crew as stopped to speak of it did not like at all the look of that sea and sky, and some stopped beside the skipper to say it, he leaning against the main rigging in the way he had, the while he would be studying the weather signs. But he made no answer to the crew, to that or any other word they had this evening, except to Saul Haverick, and to him only when he came up from supper complaining of not feeling well. He was one who could drive his crew till they could not see for very weariness, but he was one who could nurse them, too. "'Go below and turn in,' was his word to Saul, "'and stay there till you feel better.' "'Call me, Simon, if I'm not up,' he then said to me. "'I'll stand Saul's watch with you, if Saul is no better.' It was yet black night when I was called to go on watch, and Saul Haverick still complaining, 
I went to call the skipper. But he was already up, and had been, the watch before me said, for the better part of the night. I found him leaning over the gunnels of the windered nest of dories, when I went on deck, gazing out on a sea that was no longer oily smooth, though smooth enough, too, what was to be seen of it under the stars of a winter night. I stood on the break, and likewise looked about me. To anchor, and alone, lay the vessel, with but her riding light to mark her in the dark, alone and quiet, with never a neighbor to hail us, nor a sound from any living thing whatever. The very gulls themselves were asleep. Only the foresail, swaying with a short sheet, would roll part way to windward and back to leeward. But quiet as could be even then, except for the little tapping noises of the reef points, when in and out the belly of the canvas would puff full up and let down again to what little wind was stirring. It was a perfect calm night, but no calm day was to follow. "'Wicked weather ahead,' said Hugh Glynn, and came and stood beside me on the break. "'A wicked day coming.' but no help for it now till daylight comes to see our trawls to haul em. And, as one who had settled that in his mind, he said no more of it. But from mainmast to weather-rail he paced, and back again, and I took to pacing beside him. A wonderful time, the night watches at sea, for men to reveal themselves. Night and sky overhead and the wide ocean to your elbow, it drives men to thought of higher things. The wickedest of men, I have known them, with all manner of blasphemies befouling their lips by day, to become holy as little children in the watches of the night. No blasphemer was Hugh Glynn, nor did the night hold terror for him. Only as we paced the break together he spoke of matters that but himself and his God could know. It was hard to listen and be patient, though maybe it was as much of wonder as of impatience was taking hold of me as I listened. "'Do you never fear what men might come to think of you, Captain Glynn?' I said, confessing your very soul. "'Ho, oh, that's it, is it?' He came to a sudden stop in our walking. "'I should only confess the body. Is that it, Simon Kippen?' And, of course, when a man confesses to one thing of his own free will, you know there must be something worse behind? Is that it, Simon? He chuckled beside me, and, as if only to scandalize me, let his tongue run wilder yet. His tales were of violations of laws such as it had been my religion to observe since I was a boy, and little except of the comic, ridiculous side of them all. The serious matters of life, if t'was to judge by what he spoke to me that night, had small interest for him. But the queer power of the man! Had it been light where he could see me, I would have choked before ever I would let him hear me laugh. But he caught me smiling and straightened up, chuckling, to say, "'Many other things you would smile at, too, Simon.' if your bringing up would but allow the frost to thaw from your soul. 
and are reckless carryings on and desperate chancing things to smile at? Oh, Simon, Simon, what a righteous man you're to be, that never expects to see the day when no harbor this side of God's eternal sea will offer you the only safe and quiet mooring. Again I saw Mary Snow sitting at the window and looking down the street, and remembering how she had spoken of his lonely home. I said, No doubt a man like a vessel, Captain Glynn, should have always a mooring somewhere. A wonder you never thought of marrying again. I have thought of it. And with some one woman in mind? It may be. He answered that, too, without a pause. And does she know? It may be she knows. No knowing when they know, Simon. As men best understand the soul, so it is woman's best gift to understand the heart. But no fair play in me to ask her. I've had my great hour, and may not have it again with another. To offer the woman I have in mind anything less than a great love, it would be to cheat, Simon. No, 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 it's not the kind of man I am now, but the kind you are, Simon, should marry. It's not my kind that women like best, Captain, I said. There are women to like every kind, Simon, and almost any kind of a woman would like your kind, Simon, if you would only learn to be less ashamed of what should be no shame. And it is you, already in love, who— Me, in love? I was like a vessel luffing to escape a squall. He had come on me so quickly. There it is, Simon, the upbringing of you that would never own up to what you think only yourself know. Three weeks to sea now you've been with me, and never a gull you've seen skirling on the westward that your eyes haven't followed. By no mistake do you watch them flying easterly. And when last evening I said, Tomorrow, boys, we'll swing her off and drive her to the westward, to the westward and Gloucester, the leaping heart in you drove the blood to your very eyes. Surely that was not in sorrow, Simon. I made no answer. Back and forth we paced, and talked as we paced, until the stars were dimming in the sky and the darkness fading from the sea. He stopped by the rail and stared, a wary-like, I thought, upon the waters. Simon, surely few men but would rather be themselves than anybody else that lives. But, surely, too, no man sailing his own wide courses but comes to the day when he wishes he'd been less free in his navigation at times. You are honest and right, Simon. Even when you are wrong, you are right, because for a man to do what he thinks is right, whether he be right or wrong at the time, is to come to be surely right in the end. And it is the like of you, not yet a weary in soul or body, should mate with the woman molded of God to be the great mother's. You have done much thinking of some matters, Captain, I said, not knowing what else to say. Alone at sea before the dawn, 
It is a wonderful hour for a man to cross-question himself, Simon, and not many nights of late years that I haven't seen the first light of dawn creeping up over the edge of the ocean. You marry Mary Snow, Simon. He knew. What could I say? I never thought to talk like this, Captain, to a living man. In the growing light we now stood plain to each other's sight. I don't understand what made me, I said, and said it, doubtless, with a note of shame. It may be just as well at your age that you don't understand every feeling that drives you on, Simon. Our brains grow big with age, but not our hearts. No matter what made you talk tonight, Simon, you marry Mary Snow. I shook my head, but opened my heart to him nevertheless. I haven't the clever ways of Saul Haverick. Simon, it's my judgment this night that Mary Snow will never marry Saul Haverick. I'm glad to hear you think that, Captain. "'Twould spoil her life, or any woman's.' "'No, no,' he said, quick-like. "'Almost any woman's, yes. "'But not Mary Snow's, not altogether.' "'And why?' "'Because she's too strong a soul to be spoiled of her life by any one man. "'Because no matter what man she marries, in her heart will be the image.' not of the man her husband is, but of the man she'd wish him to be. And in the image of that man of her fancy will her children be born. Women molded of God to be the mothers of great men are fashioned that way, Simon. They dream great dreams for their children's sake to come, and their hearts go out to the man who helps to make their dreams come true. If I've learned anything of good women in life, Simon, it is that. And, no saying, I may be wrong in that too, Simon, but so far I've met no man who knows more of it than I to gainsay me. You marry Mary Snow, Simon, and she will bear you children who will bring new light to a darkening world. The dawn was rolling up to us, and the next on watch was on deck to relieve me, and the cook, too, with his head above the forecastle hatch, was calling that breakfast was ready, and we said no more of that. "'Go forward, Simon,' said Captain Glynn, "'and have your breakfast. After breakfast we'll break out our anchor and our dories and get that gear aboard afore it's too late.' I'll go below and see how Saul's getting on. With that he went into the cabin, but soon was back to take his seat at the breakfast table. But no word of Saul until we had done eating, and he standing to go up on deck. Then he said, Saul says he is still too sick to go in the dory with you, Simon. And to that I said, well, I've hauled a halibut trawl single-handed before, Captain Glynn, and I can do it again if need be. He put on his woolen cap, and across the table he looked at me, and I looked hard at him. This will be no morning to go single-handed in a dory, Simon. 
Saul is not too sick, he says, to stand to the wheel and handle the vessel in my place. I will take his place along with you in the dory. What he was thinking I could not say. His head was thrown back and his eyes looking out and down at me, as from the top of a faraway hill, and no more knowing what thoughts lay behind them than what ships lay beyond the horizon. End of chapter 3 Recording by Roger Moline